Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on January 14th, 2016. We've entered a truly decisive year in world history, and it started out in grand fashion. Today's focus will be on China. We'll get into some of the details of why the Chinese stock market is crashing and the fundamentals of the Chinese economy. Also, to give a fuller picture, we'll talk about the Chinese currency and the shift China is trying to make from a command and control economy to a consumer-driven system. Next, we'll focus on the domestic economy here in the U.S. What's causing the drop in, US, in the U.S. stock market, and what's the outlook for general economic health in 2016? Also, how can listeners best protect themselves, and what's all the alarm about regarding the dropping price of oil? So, Ronaldo, let's start with China and the recent wild gyrations and strong negative trend in their stock market. What's going on here? Well, it's a very interesting um, conversation. You know, I, I, I had uh, two listeners this week, um, Eve Constantine uh, and uh, Mark Houghton both called me, uh, and they're both regular listeners of the show, and um, Eve called me right as it was all starting to break last week, wanting to know, you know, what, you know, should there, is there reason to be fearful? Because there's all this talk about, my God, the stock market's having its worst week in uh, many years, first, worst January in many years. So the question is, what's going on? And my answer to Eve, which I wanted to expound on on the show, is much ado about nothing. In fact, and I went into greater length with, 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 with Mark, but I would like to do with our listeners now. I'd like to step back, take a big, deep breath. If the concern about China is that somehow its growth rate will continue to slow, that's true, it will. It doesn't run at 10% per annum as it did when it was burning up the track. However, it's on track to be generating about somewhere in the 5 to 6% real GDP growth in 2016. Now, why I find that so fascinating is a best-case scenario for the U.S. economy would be 3% growth, which, by the way, I think it'll hit. That's half of what China will do. So China in a slowing mode is just starting to bring China back into the normal reality of what global growth requires. And global growth can't be requiring China be at 10% because it's A, not sustainable, and B, it's ultimately destructive. So what we want to do is look, step back and say, so why is the stock market overreacting, particularly when the stock market knows that the U.S. economy is very strong? In fact, the economies that are having terrible problems, Germany's going sideways. England, the UK, United Kingdom, is coming out of a double dip, but is not exactly powering up the ladder. It's doing better than Germany right now. France is still going negative. Italy hasn't recovered. And I could go around the globe and just pick one nation after the other that's doing mediocre to poor. There are some examples, by the way, of nations that are doing very well. But my, apart from the U.S., but of the big economies... Only the U.S. economy is doing very well. And some of the big economies, the ones we used to talk about a year ago on this show, the BRICS, which is uh, Brazil, in terrible shape, getting worse. Uh, so BRICS, R stands for Russia. Terrible shape, <laughs> almost in free fall. Um, India, doing great. India's going to grow at somewhere between 4 and 6% this year. 
might even have the first opportunity to outgrow China in quite some time and is doing it all the right way. India is really growing smart. Uh, and I can talk more about that in terms of their energy composition as well as China's energy composition. So all of those things. Uh, oh, and I guess the last one. So BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, China, India. And China's where we started. So of the BRICS, two of the four, and the two biggest by far, China and India are doing extremely well. Not just okay, extremely well. 6% growth for China and likely 5 to 6% growth for India would indicate a really good year. Now, what people are afraid of is, well, will that be enough to pull the global economy up the ramp? Well, I want to suggest to you that with the U.S. growth of 2015 behind us and a steady trajectory of growth coming forward, there is no question but that the, the global economy should do as well in 2016 as it did in 2015 and perhaps a little better. And by the way, folks, that's amazing given where we have been. So I just want to underscore one thing that happened in the president's speech, and then we'll take this wherever you want to go, Matt. But you know, when President Obama said that the economy is really doing well, and anybody peddling a different opinion, the U.S. economy, is absolutely peddling political hot air. That is so true. It is unbelievably true. And, and when we get to the part of the show where I would like to tick off all the things that are going to continue to propel the U.S. economy in 2016, all of which are favorable, by the way, with one minor exception, all of them favorable, I believe that you're going to see continued growth in the U.S. And what China's really doing is not reacting to a bubble the way a free economy would. If you had a, quote, bubble in a free economy, it could be potentially destructive, just like it was in the U.S. with the housing bubble. However, in China, don't think of it as a bubble. Do they have a whole bunch of real estate they're not going to use for a long time? Yeah, that's not a bubble. It's a make-works project. It's what the WPA did in the 30s. They learned from Roosevelt. And what they're doing is they're keeping their people employed. And the last thing I want to say about China is that China is not like a normal nation. So you have to understand the leadership of China does not have as their primary objective What's best for China, interestingly enough? Their leadership has as their primary objective what's best for the Communist Party. And when you have less than 1% of the population, that's how many Communist Party members there are in China, when you have less than 1% of the population, it means you look at control issues more than you look at long-term fundamental economic issues. You use economics as a way to gain and keep control of the population. So what China will do is it will use its vast global currency reserves, its vast market potential, its enormous amount of new middle class, and it will tend to regulate that economic system so that the money that gets lost to them in the sector called residential or commercial housing or commercial real estate, mostly commercial in their case, uh, but it's also residential, uh, will it'll get absorbed over time. And in the meantime, they let people break into a lot of those residences who are otherwise be homeless because they got a place to stay. So I don't, I'm not worried about the bubble, quote unquote. What they'll do is they'll reorient their assets now. And here's what I predict they will do with them. Well, can I, can I pause you for a sec? Sure. So I want to read, I want to drill down on your point about the Communist Party and their politics. You know, one, one theory and one, one point of our show is to reconnect the words politics and economics. 
uh, because the political economy is what it used to be called when you study politics and economics. Uh, we, we've separated the two as if they can exist independent of each other, and I don't think they can. But your point about the way that the, the Communist Party is really interested in preservation of its power. Um, you know, some would say that in the U.S., our po political leaders, one of their main focuses is keeping power. Uh, how is this different? Is it just that they have more control over the economy in China? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's because they're much more honest about what they're doing, <laughs> truthfully. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, uh, another line from the president's speech, which I thought was an excellent speech, by the way. I, I really enjoyed hearing him list the things we could all work on together. And I heard, uh, I heard a lot of reasons to be very pleased that he was taking the longer view, not just the last year of his presidency. Uh, but no, I think that the Chinese are really honest about the fact that their number one interest is the Communist Party. They don't make any bones about it. We pretend in the U.S., and I will say this of most politicians uh, in both parties, most, I mean by far most, in both parties, see their own personal preservation as more important than the country's best interests. There are exceptions. Politicians who you know are always trying to do the right thing for the right reason. I think Angus King, the independent out of Maine. I think, uh, uh, I think um, there are many I could name, but I'm going to just, I'll, I'll resist out of the fact that there's so much contention in politics. But what I really do want to point out is what the president said in his speech. If you want to know the only people who have a 30-year, who are likely to be in the same jobs with as good or better medical care, as good or better retirement benefits and 100% and job security, they're sitting in the House of Representatives in the Senate. Right. So what we did is we created a permanent class of elected officials. That's different than creating a permanent party that controls all elected officials. So right now, I'm going to say, even though you technically only have two parties in America, the Republicans and the Democrats, although for those who are listening who are history students, you know that the, the Whigs predate the Republicans and the Federalists predate both. So what I want to suggest is that in America, we've permitted a permanent political class to take control of our politics. And that happened because we allowed an oligarchy, and Bernie Sanders is absolutely right about this, of power and money to coalesce at the top that would then provide the money in a freewheeling system that the Supreme Court blessed inappropriately, and I think illegally, I think the history will reflect that decision was wrong in Citizens United. And what basically the Supreme Court's blessed was all the money in the world can buy all the politicians in the world you want. So what's really going on in America is that money controls America. Okay. And what money does is it buys those people who have the least amount of moral um, strength first, and then works its way up the ladder from there based on pressure points. So even liberal Democrats are subject to the power of influence of money politics, whether they like it or not. And clearly, the far right wing has pandered to that. So I thought that what the president said about job security was accurate, and I want to give a big heads up to Nikki Haley. I don't know who put her up to that speech, but it was brilliant because what she said was the truth, which is people from both parties have to take responsibility for the toxic environment, and the people of both parties have to step up and be willing to be accountable for getting for lowering the, the, the vituperative exchange and increasing the intelligent commitment for change. Uh, one other person came on the air after Nikki, which I thought was interesting. People probably didn't see him. Tim Pawlenty, former governor of Minnesota. 
and when asked about Nikki Haley's comments, said, you know, well, she was really right. We have to get involved with redistricting. Letting politicians set the boundaries or borders of their own districts is one of the linchpins of disaster because then with big money, you, you can literally control the Congress to the point where 95% of the entire Congress gets reelected every time they run. Right. Now, I want to go that back. I want to tie that back now to communism. Yes. So communism is upfront about the fact the party controls the state. Here, we're not upfront about the fact that money controls the state. And what we need to do is to change the dynamic. And we claim we have two political parties, Republican and Democrats, but we really have more than that. So one of the political parties I will now call the Tea Party right wing of the Republican Party, which clearly now has a schism with conventional, traditional Republicans. And that's what you heard Nikki Haley speak to. So on the Tea Party side of the Republican agenda, you've got Ted Cruz, you've got Donald Trump, and you've got a lot of the crazy things being said. And you've got people like Chris Christie, who would otherwise be in the traditional wing, but he felt desperate to get over to the right wing and start doing crazy stuff in order to get through the primaries. Then you've got the traditional Republican Party, represented by Kasich, and some other people in the middle who really never even got a shot to, to have a, a conversation. And by the way, you've got people like Huckabee and Fiorina Carla Fiorina over on the crazy right side too. Then you got, as you go, keep going on the spectrum, then you've got centrist Democrats. And I actually would have put Clinton in that category up until this election. I think, she, so the centrist Democrat would be a Feinstein. It would be, um, a lot of people like that. Um, candidly, Harry Reid would be a centrist Democrat. Um, people from, um, Joe Manchin from, um, what is it? West Virginia. Right. Uh, all of those are centered. Then you get over to the right of them, and where Clinton now has gone further to the left of that, which would be um, what I'm going to call reform Democrats, people who are willing to talk about the ills in the system and name names, meaning, yeah, we have a financial sector out of control, we have a banking sector out of control, we have a spending issue, we have a crisis in the distribution of wealth in our society. Criminal justice issues. kind of Criminal justice issues, which, by the way, can tap in in other places in the spectrum, including the far right. Where it loops back around. Yeah. Where it loops back around, because, you know, you go around the globe, you come back to where you started. And then off to the right of of, of Hillary, I, you have what I would call the purists, on the, uh, to the left of Hillary, you have the purists of the left, who are Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Howard Dean, people who are absolutely convinced that if they would get a chance to do the right thing every day, that would change America for the better. Now, I believe you're going to see a breakdown, a further breakdown through the Republican primary stru structure in this, this two-party system. And I think that's the best thing that happened to America. And I would love it if people would ask me questions why. And I would love it particularly if people said to me, but gee, parliamentary democracies like Britain and Greece and others don't work as Germany don't work as well as our system of government why would we want to have multi-parties happy to talk love to talk about that and why we have a unique advantage to execute in a multi-party but when you tie that back to what I started to say about China which is they're just more honest about what they're doing then you look at the over construction of apartment buildings the over construction of of residential and you don't see it as a boom you see it or a bust, or a boomlet, you see it as what it is. It's conspicuous consumption. Now, please go look that up. For those of you who like the, the, the financial literacy terms we throw around here, go look up conspicuous consumption. It's actually a term in economics. And what it means is when you do something with money for the sole purpose of making sure it doesn't come back to haunt you later. So the best example always of conspicuous consumption are the pyramids. So the, there, there was no advantage to building the pyramids except it kept a lot of people employed. Nothing. 
no, no, no conceivable benefit that anybody's ever been able to ascribe to the society. Spent a lot of money, big monument. One guy dies, he gets buried in there. You go build another one. You can't even reuse the bricks. I mean, it's really the ultimate in conspicuous consumption. But the story I like to tell, just to tie this back to how these things work. So what China's doing today with the boomlet in, re, in construction, which they knew they were doing, they knew they were creating an over, overbuild, is just exactly what FDR did with the WPA, Works Progress Administration, and the New Deal. It's like you go spend money and you try to get things to happen by employing people because you got all these people in the countryside you got to get jobs for. Well, Roosevelt did one other thing, which I want to share with our listeners. Which... Can we pause there for one second? I want to talk about the conspicuous consumption concept in China. So what you're saying is essentially this is a giant jobs program to keep the economy going, to use up all the extra labor and money and capital they could sink into building huge apartment buildings and huge uh, office buildings in these massive cities, even though they knew that there wasn't going to be anybody to fill those apartments and those office buildings, right? I mean, I heard a statistic that there was five square feet of office space for every person in China. And, you know, in a mostly rural uh, economy still, or mostly rural population, that's insane. I mean, everyone could have their own office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the point of it is, well, or their place to crash it again, Small their place office. to sleep. <laughs> a place to sleep. Yeah. I mean, sneak in the building and at least keep you warm. They can at least have a standing desk, but yeah, everyone yes. would have one. <laughs> everyone would have one. Yeah, so, so that's conspicuous consumption, okay? Because you know it won't create economic value in the anywhere near, near, near term. However... Because it's made of concrete and steel, it will be there in 30 years. And so if you are the Chinese Communist Party and you believe that you have another 350 million people somehow, 350 million, you've got to get from the hinterland and put them in cities somewhere. And you've got to find something for them to do. And you've got to find some place for them to live. You go, okay, we can't do it today because we don't know how to employ them. But what we can do is we can build it so it's there. So they really subscribe to the field of dreams. <laughs> build it and they will come. Yeah. And they're trying to lure their populations out of the hinterland where they can't support them. And they know that men with hungry bellies make revolution. Right. So the Ming Dynasty did this long before the current Communist Party. The Communist Chinese Party is just absolutely dynastic in their view. It's the same thing the Chinese dynasties have been doing for 5,000 years. So you take that overconsumption, which is conspicuous... You build it because you know that you're going to have to figure out somehow for them to come. In the process, you create more middle-class people, right. which is one of your goals, because the people with the hard hats that deal with the constructing, they're more middle-class than the people back in the hinterland. And what you say is, okay, now those people will buy Chinese goods. Now, this is the key. China knows and declared three years ago it had to switch from an export-driven economy to a consumer economy. That's a very tough thing to do. So what China's been doing is try to move more and more into its domestic consumption side of the ledger, away from having to make jobs just by building bridges to nowhere. Now, their method for doing that, when they started 25 years ago to bring the modern Chinese economy into the, into the, into the, into the world, that is kind of stunning because we didn't know, we did not know that they could pull off the balancing act that they were going to try to bring this primitive nation into the modern economy. And they have done a brilliant job by every imagination through two and a half changes of leadership. Because remember, that way they elect, their Politburo gets 10 years with the guy in power. He's got to go at the end. He's termed out, which is something we ought to do. He's gone and his team goes and they get another 10-year plan. So what they've done through two and a half changes and they now have a new 10-year plan that just started, 
is remarkably steady and sophisticated. Stay where we are. They built one on a conspicuous consumption thing. They took and they said, you know, someday we'll need more transportation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to build the fastest, most complete, high-speed rail system in the world from scratch, starting from zero, not one train. In 10 years flat, when they didn't have anywhere near enough riders, they built the biggest, on average fastest, most miles of track, high-speed rail system in the world. And they are now competing with other countries to build rail systems for them. So they built an industry, which they're exporting, and they built a transportation system they didn't really need yet. But as they grow, which they have done in the ensuing 15 years since they started, that transportation system served them extremely well because they didn't have to build the roads they would have built otherwise. So they leapfrogged a road construction project, which actually is going to save them a ton of money in the long run. I just point these things out because people have to know that when I said to Eve and to Mark, this is much ado about nothing. I'm really serious, folks. What's going on is you, we are being played by, we've been being played as suckers by Wall Street. So let's talk just a little bit about the cause before we move into Wall Street, because I think that's a really important next point. Two things. First, what the, the Chinese stock market is not trustworthy. Is that right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. First of all, calling it a stock market is a misnomer. Come on. <laughs> That's a mahjong game on steroids. That's what that is. It's a gambling den like they've been doing for a couple of hundred years. They used to smoke opium there. Now they show up and smoke cigarettes. But at the end of the day, no one, absolutely no one I know who's even remotely sophisticated thinks that's a real stock market. That is a gambling den with a set of rules that are still being formed as we speak. And they have no idea what they're doing for the most part. And the little bit they do know, they tend to ignore with great regularity. What that is, is the beginnings of a capital system of trading where you trade with devices that are not pigs and shafts of wheat and where you can trade on your hopes. I think this guy will do well tomorrow. I think this company won't. But there are no rational guidelines so that you as a person can inject money and expect that there's some rational system that will protect that money if you can just figure out how to move it around. So everyone's playing a game. They just don't know what the rules are. Is that right? Well, the rules change. And that's different than the U.S. stock market, which has a lot of regulations and transparency. Well, it's, it's different than every stock market of consequence. It's, it's different than the Singapore index, the Brazilian uh, Bovespa. It's different than the London exchange, the New York exchange. Uh, it, 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 there's nothing like those are real stock markets. What's in China isn't a real stock market. And so when people see it hiccuping, what do you expect, folks? It's a Mahyong game, and somebody wins, somebody loses today. And tomorrow, it could look artificially like someone is really building equity value. They're not. Why do you think Alibaba, their biggest and most successful company, wants to be traded on the New York exchange? Because that's a real stock exchange. Right. There, and you can translate value there. You can't in China. That's just crazy. And, and Wall Street knows that, which is why I think they're playing us for suckers. So let's talk about Wall Street right after we talk a little bit about Chinese currency, because that's one that you were talking to me about this morning that I thought was really interesting. Apparently the renminbi, or the yuan, is it? Yeah. Both names. It's uh, just recently gained international monetary fund designation as an official reserve currency, along with the US dollar, the pound sterling, the yen, and the euro. W what does that mean? Okay, so the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, confers this ranking. I think the Chinese made a mistake doing this. I think I mean, everybody knows why they did it. I think it's a mistake. They just And here's why it's a mistake. Why they do it. Okay. 
They wanted the IMF for political reasons. Number one, it's, 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 it's a political thing. It's like, we're a big guy too. So what the IMF did at the Chinese, because they've been pushing, is they said, okay, if you look at the total size of this economy, Chinese economy, you look at the amount of bank regulation, not stock market, bank regulation, different thing. They're, they're really learning how to do bank regulation in China. Uh, and you look at the volume of transactions being conducted in that currency, it is clear to us as the IMF that we need to designate it as a currency in which international transactions can occur with safety and predictability. So that's a reserve currency. That's a reserve currency. So once they named them in, um, what was it, the late November, they named the Chinese to the status, it gives the Chinese the ability to now stand with equal dignity on the international currency stage, and they can argue to start doing transactions in their currency. Let me explain why that's important, and then what they didn't get. It's important because, let's say, I want to... I'm, I'm a Botswana, and I need to buy some oil from Kyrgyzstan. Well, I'm going to have to translate my Botswana currency into U.S. dollars. My U.S. dollars probably into rubles in the case of uh, Kyrgyzstan. My rubles into the local currency, buy it. Then they translate it back into rubles, back into dollars, back into Botswana. So each one of those steps causes friction in the chain. So it's not lubricated smoothly, and therefore it's more expensive. So what everybody does is they use reserve currencies. So if I'm a Botswana guy, instead of naming rubles or Kyrgyzstani, whatever they have, I just say, in U.S. dollars, I'm buying this much. And they sell it to me in U.S. dollars. And the translation loss is with the seller or the buyer, but you, you know what you got, which is a stable currency. So theoretically now, Iran, which has wanted to sell directly and has begun selling directly to China and taking back Ramimbi, and that's the official name of the currency, by the way, they're sometimes referred to as Chinese yuan. So when they're taking the renminbi back, or yuan, however you like to call it, uh, that that's a one-step exchange. So and, and the Iranians can now spend that renminbi or yuan anywhere in the world they want to because everybody will now know that the IMF will clear those currencies. What they didn't get 